0: Back again. This time we're talking about Theodore Adorno's The Culture Industry. So, this is a collection of essays that are kind of galvanized around or cohere around the idea of the culture industry. Now, before jumping into it, a few things to say. You can find this on Podbean or any other place you find your uh, podcasts. You can also find me on Instagram at Theory underscore and underscore philosophy. Uh, my Patreon account is there for anyone that is willing to contribute. That would obviously be great. Uh, I want to thank Boz, James, John, Matt, Nicholas, Sebastian, and Ashley, who have been extremely helpful in keeping this going. Now, without further ado, don't want to waste more of your time, uh, the culture industry. Now, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do, and I'm going to present this out of order. Now, all that will mean is I'm going to start with chapter three. Now, the reason I'm doing that is because in chapter three, Theodore Adorno lays out what he means by the culture industry. And the title of that chapter is The Culture Industry Reconsidered. So for the other chapters, you're gonna find, if you look in the description, timestamps. So if you just have to read one of these chapters specifically for a class, or you just happen to be curious about just one thing, then you'll be able to find it pretty easily with these timestamps. But just know for now, we're starting with chapter three. Now, here he reminds his reader that the idea of the culture industry first emerged for him, or in his work, in the piece that he co-wrote with um, Horkheimer, Max Horkheimer, The Dialectic of Enlightenment. Now, they make the case here that the culture industry is kind of the idea of mass culture. But they err on the side of caution, and instead of possibly evoking the sense that there is a culture that emerges from the mass they instead go with this idea of the culture industry. That is, they're trying to think of the way in which advanced industrial production that is under capitalism kind of creates or molds the idea of what culture can be for people. So what the culture industry does, and it does this from kind of up on high, that is, it does it from top to bottom, is it essentially um, forces together both the spheres of high and low art, where they are essentially homogenized. Now he says that the, the uh, seriousness of high art is destroyed in speculation about its efficacy, that is, how effective it can be, and while the seriousness of the lower, or low art, perishes with the civilizational constraints imposed on the rebellious resistance inherent within it as long as social control was not yet total. So what does that mean? Well, in his words, and at least how I understand it, serious art is kind of evacuated of any potential because it, be, it, it, it isn't seen as like a thing, perhaps in itself. It is contemplated in terms of what it can provide for society. It might be like an escape. It might be um, a way by which uh, class is designated, which is obviously for him, a marker of a you know an advanced industrial capitalist thing while low art, quote unquote low art, is kind of used as a supposed resistive strategy to that which is ultimately just commodified by the uh, culture industry. So everything is essentially measured in relation to its potential as value, that is its potential as a commodity. Now these commodities can take somewhat abstract forms, you know, um, the punk scene is just one example of of a movement that was very much commodified you know, in the service of I guess marketing, uh, marketing transgression or marketing insubordination. And one of the consequences is that on the public, it transforms them into masses. That is, masses who are homogenized under this kind of totalizing system of production and consumption. So it doesn't matter if there are people buying different things, it is simply the fact that they are buying in the service of this very new, very specific system. It's not just you know an extension of a previous one, it is quite new. It is only because people do that that they enter into this kind of homogenous framework where they become objects, or in Adorno's words, they become simply an appendage of the machinery, which comes right out of Marx in, in many ways, like Marx really thought about the way in which a worker, in relation to a machine, becomes an extension of that machine. You know, and this comes out in so many different ways in his work, but we're not, we're not here to talk about Marx. Now, what does he mean when he's talking about industry? He says he, he qualifies the term industry as follows. He says it refers to the standardization of the thing itself. Fundamentally, to the rationalization of distribution techniques, but not strictly to the production process, and that is because when we think of production, we might be want to think that this is like an, on an assembly line happening in like a factory somewhere. When in fact, production can occur in many different ways. The production of art, for instance, might not, you know, in our minds, immediately convey the image of uh, a kind of worker. But, in many ways, what we are seeing is that very reproduction of the system in that act of production, which is so often you know, considered to be separate from, uh, from production, from industry. So for Adorno, he says that it is more industrial in a sociological sense. So he gives an example, he says, think of, for instance, the ras- rationalization of office work for example, or the production, the kind of creation of stars in like film or television that, you know, are meant to kind of evoke the sense or convince people that they themselves can become stars, that they themselves are not simply slaves. That's a very drastic word. Are not simply subordinate to a system that makes them uh, kind of cogs in the machine. So this idea of rationalization is extremely important. So people within this system, that is like kind of cogs in the machine, are turned into rational products of this machine so that they can be the most productive, they can have the most, um, I guess, effective, most um, utilizable output for the system. So Adorno is indebted here to the work of Max Weber, who I guess would have set the the tone for this idea of rationalization, that is the rationalization of culture through like uh, administration, through organization, through bureaucracy, everything like that, that essentially leaves little room for error, even though error happens all the time, of course. And that's just kind of an aside. Weber comes in this text every once in a while, Adorno sprinkles them in there, but it's just in case you wanted more context. Now, what happens in the culture industry. Well, here, Adorno kind of draws a distinction between himself, and this is gonna come up again later on in one of the later chapters, uh, between himself and Walter Benjamin. Now, for those that aren't totally familiar, Walter Benjamin is a thinker that belonged to the Frankfurt School, and I don't wanna go too much into a thing about Benjamin, but he has this idea of the aura, and he believes that in the act of reproduction, specifically mechanical reproduction, indicative of, um, you know, Contemporary technologies or technologies that emerged in the early 20th century, with film, uh, filmmaking technologies, sound capturing technologies, anything like that. What he believed was that the aura, that is the kind of um, socio, you know, geographical position from which an artwork emerges, that is the kind of history of the artwork, disappears. Now, Benjamin kind of celebrates that. He says, "Wow, look at all." this new look at this new potential of the artwork emancipated from the constraints of like you know museums or of the church or of government look at all the fascinating new ways that art can be worked with it can be shaped it can reveal things about our lives now adorno does not agree at all really with uh, benjamin save a few things but this is one thing that he really is suspicious of. So Adorno says that the aura in this in this system does not go away. In fact, it is maintained, in his words, as a kind of foggy mist. Now there's a point to that, and that is because it is, well, he thinks that it is maintained as a foggy mist, as a kind of like spectral figure, because if it were to actually completely go away as Benjamin kind of celebrates or, or hopes for, then people would probably fall into like a kind of total nihilism. So Adorno says that the system is very effective at maintaining the idea that the aura is still there, the, uh, maintaining the idea that you know people can attain fulfillment, can attain um, a kind of possible transcendence within the system itself. So this kind of problem is maintained or the, or the issue that Adorno sees here in people recognizing in the system a certain possibility is, you know, maintained by sociologists and anthropologists alike who Adorno is writing against who say that, you know, the culture industry as we see it, the product of late industrial capitalism is just another form of organization like any other and that the same rules apply to any other form of organization. Now Adorno says, no, this is something fundamentally new coming out of the enlightenment and we cannot just simply throw our hands in the air and say, well, we have to try to work with what we have. And it is in that way that he believes that the system is not only promoted by, you know, lay people who are generally unthinking workers, who do not have the capacity to kind of reflect critically on their world and their own lives. Adorno thinks that, you know, many intellectuals are participating in this very problem as well, in that they are contributing to the maintenance of the system with their rhetoric and the kind of conformity that we see here which is like a, a similar or similar to the kind of homogenization we see between low and high art that is now between intellectuals and you know average folk uh, we see a similar homogenization into conformity so it is in that way and he, he's, this is kind of an interesting point in my mind that the culture industry is anti-enlightenment in that the enlightenment. Although it kind of prided itself on ideas of rationalization and, you know, um, compartmentalization, efficiency, things like that, it is, or the culture industry, is notably anti-individual. That is, it is solely meant to kind of produce hordes or masses of people. So it is in that way, he says, it's kind of uh, anti-enlightenment. So that now closes off chapter three, and we will jump back now to chapter one, having kind of established what the culture industry is. All right, so chapter one is titled On the Fetish Character in Music and the Regression of Listening. So he starts out this chapter by saying that historically, it would seem as though a diminishment or a regression of musical taste meant that there was a disequilibrium between what he calls the immediate manifestation of impulse, that is in music, and the locus of its taming. So there would then be, you know, it was believed that music would kind of maintain an equilibrium that is between the desires of the body and also, you know, the taming of those very desires. And he goes on a whole exposition about the way that, uh, you know, the Greek form of music that is, how you know there are certain arbitrary distinctions drawn between different um, like tonal arrangements between like, ionic and um, pentatonic and all these sorts of things, but it's not all that important. What is important is that Adorno says what we present, what we find ourselves in today, that is in the mid 20th century, has nothing to do with taste as it has historically. Now we are just completely removed from the realm of taste totally removed from, you know, even the realm of art, as we could say we once knew it. So what we have today instead of that is simply recognition. And this is a brutal blow that he delivers against the system. He says that we equate our recognition of something with having a certain um, liking for it. So we hear a song on the radio and we, we recognize it and we think that that is our liking it. So it's very uncritical. It doesn't reflect upon its liking of the thing. And this is very, very true uh, when, you know, if you interrogate anyone about their, their tastes, you will often find the, the conversation will simply regress into a kind of, well, I just like it, and that's just it. And we're kind of doomed in this way. So he says that to have or to claim to have a kind of value judgment is to fall prey to the idea that you can have a value judgment in this system, which he says is you can't. You simply cannot. And because no one can actually have a, a voice in that way, then therefore people have lost the capacity to listen because they are not listening to anything meaningful, either on their radios or among the people that are engaging in that. We're kind of collectively listening to those things on the radio. So if, if then no one can listen, what we, see, what we have is a reduction of all people to silence. Now I want to sketch uh, an image that I think many people will associate with, and that is having you know a relative, perhaps an older relative, who says like, oh, well, music today isn't as good as it once was. You know, this kind of mythical uh, previous time, this kind of mythical era where music was great. And, you know, they might point to like the Beatles as just one simple example, as though there weren't a thousand other terrible, terrible bands at that time. But of course we ignore that in favor of this broader point. Now what this is doing is trying to justify that there was at one time a great period in music in the 20th century, which is just a kind of trompe uh, l'oeil. It's just a way to kind of trick us into thinking that there, you know, the system can be um, can deliver quality content when in fact it it can't. And that is because for Adorno, and I think this is something that some critics of Adorno, mostly not really critics, people who just don't like Adorno, get wrong. So Adorno isn't leveling a judgment against the kinds of art produced, you know, at the time that he was writing this in the 20th century or so. Um, He's not saying that this art is like objectively worse than Bach, than Beethoven, than, you know, Mozart, whatever. What he is saying is that it falls within a system that doesn't actually appreciate the art. It instead only makes that art, in his words, serve a diversionary function. So it is in that way you cannot escape it. It is not the art itself, it's the intent behind it. It's the system in which it is located that makes any possible, you know, fruitful engagement with it impossible. So, music that at one time would have been highly transgressive, take, you know, uh, let's jump back to the Greeks again. Plato wrote pretty extensively in the Republic about certain forms of art that needed to be banned. One of them that, just off the top of my head, is like blasphemous art. So art that would make a mockery of the gods. So that was kind of setting up a template for what could be very easily transgressive art. Now what we have today, and I keep saying today, although again Adorno's only writing this in the mid-20th century or so, but in many ways the same ideas can apply. Uh, What we see today is the capitalist system actually incorporating negativity into itself. So art that is seen as being transgressive, the example I gave earlier, like punk music, is internalized into the system and it becomes a matter of commodification where to be, uh, to belong to punk demands that you exist within the system in a certain capacity. You buy from the system in a certain capacity. Even if it means that you're only buying in thrift shops, that already implies that these clothes have gone through a certain market system that prima facie makes them uh, kind of evacuates them of any kind of critical potential. And there was a time even, and Adorno was very clear about this, when something as banal as the street ballad for him attacked the cultural privilege of the ruling class, whereas now, today, that's not possible. So the distinctions between low and high art get all mixed in and, and, and you know, they, they they become a kind of, I um, guess, melange of you know, different, different kind of cultural effects and, and, and possibilities, where on the radio you can go from one channel to the next, and in doing that you go from, I don't know, Mariah Carey to Beethoven, or even on the same channel you have, um, you know, Beethoven's music finding its way into, you know, the kind of harmonic progressions or melodic progressions of some of the new pop songs, like as though these things can just be thrown together. Now, I'm not saying that either one of these pieces of music is better than the other, but we are presented with something fundamentally new, and that is the kind of appropriation of these previous forms of music into the capitalist system, where at that time, you know, they were part of their own um, kind of oppressive system, one that Adorno is very critical of. That is the, you know, aristocratic bourgeois system that was obviously uh, foreclosed to almost everyone except the extremely rich. So Adorno wants to separate himself from many reactionaries out there who might see, you know, in contemporary music or, or, you know, the emergence of pop music or anything like that, a regression. You know, they say, like, that is where music is regressing. For Adorno, he makes the case, or he just simply says, that it is just as possible to make beautiful... Uh, music with a moderately good voice as it is on a moderately good piano so he doesn't want to like lionize stars or like extreme talent you know he likes music and thinks music can be done with you know not the best equipment per se it can be done even not not even with the most talent and he says that there is a trend there's a kind of tendency among certain reactionaries to in the face of a kind of uh, progressing pop music scene, to continually be returning to a time, this mythical time I presented earlier, uh, prior to this pop scene, that you know was supposed to be the marker of kind of real music. So he says, the more modern technique of the violin bow progresses, the more it seems that the old instruments are treasured, which can be essentially said of this of artists, where you know. Instead of Ariana Grande, someone cites John Lennon as being a good, um, a good musical artist, even though Ariana Grande is a ton of talent. So why does this all come about? What, what forces this, this shift instead of it just being a, a general abstract regression in musical quality? Adorno says that it is the very real shift in the capitalist system from an emphasis on use value to an emphasis on exchange value. which says, you know, previously in some other systems, Uh, not all of them, but the idea was that you satisfied your needs, whereas the kind of moniker of capitalism is that it creates needs, you know. It creates things that you then think you want, you then think you need, and this exchange provides an illusion of choice, a kind of freedom to be an individual, but this is just a kind of uh, illusory individuality, what is sometimes called pseudo-individualization or individuation. So here the, you know, despite the fact that the, there are no longer any voices to be heard, everyone thinks that they are, you know, an expert. They have an opinion on the matter. They can share those thoughts, and everyone is willing to hear them. Mostly, you know, in any kind of setting, it's mostly dudes shouting over everyone else, but they still feel themselves to have an opinion, which, of course, Adorno is very suspicious about, where he would say, how much of your opinion is an exact carbon copy of everyone else's around you? And when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, so many people's opinions about things are just so uh, closely in line with one another that you have to ask, is there some kind of diabolical plot behind this that is trying to get people to all think the same way? And of course, this kind of hyper-opinionated mass um, kind of pushes the artist to be even more perfect, so they rely more on kind of the technical perfectibility of their art, where No mistakes are are allowed, not because they are necessarily wanting their art to be perfect, they might, but it is just because they fear the possible um, backlash from this kind of critical mass. But this perfection, very much like the voices that might chastise it, is rather homogenous. That is, it corresponds to what Adorno calls standardization. Now in another piece that's not actually found in this book where Adorno writes about pop music. He says that standardization kind of emerged from there, just being one kind of popular piece of art. Could have been popular piece of music, for example, that then people saw as being a kind of like archetypical um, work of work of genius, which could then be replicated. So that is how standardization kind of goes about, and you know we can see this everywhere where take music as being, how many songs can you think of that follow this pattern, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, or yeah, bridge, then maybe another verse, chorus, which is so many songs follow that pattern, which is totally random. Or the fact that we, like so many people in North America wear blue jeans. Like, why? It's just, for some reason, we, it's just normal. We just, we just totally expect it. But it makes no sense. So many other places in the world where blue jeans are a totally foreign, alien concept. But it's standard. It is just the norm. And because of that, it, it becomes invisible. So this kind of gravitation towards standardization, towards the standard, is a kind of fetishism implied about music. That is, this is the idea that music can be perfect. And this perfection is a kind of Uh, neutral assessment, which of course, as I've just kind of tried to argue, it isn't. You know, it belongs to a very specific kind of cultural paradigm. And this isn't, you know, simply a matter of class where, you know, it's just the subordinate lower classes that fall prey to this. Adorno is very clear that um, even those in positions of power have, in his words, become victims of the superior of self-propelled wheels. That is, we fall into this kind of framework, this kind of repetitive action that allows very little mobility as far as our autonomy goes. So another camp of people that Adorno is critical of is what he calls the kind of liberals and progressives in America who kind of advocate for this kind of pop music, who say, who aren't on the other side saying like, oh, it's a regression of listening in and of itself. Adorno is saying, um, or no, these people are saying that we should celebrate it because it's kind of like Uh, the explosion of a democratic potential. That is, anyone can produce it, anyone can engage with it, anyone can criticize it. And Adorno's like, well, maybe we shouldn't celebrate it too much because, in his words, it is simply tied to the vulgarized and decaying remnants of romantic individualism. And there we see the emergence of the kind of star system where, you know, the stars of today, everyone knows who, I assume everyone knows who Lizzo is, who... Mariah Carey is, who Ariana Grande is, who Ed Sheeran is, and that is this kind of rampant individualism that we should be very skeptical of, at least Adorno thinks so. So he ends this chapter with the following line that I think kind of summarizes it well. He says, in music two, collective powers are liquidating an individuality past saving, but against them only individuals are capable of consciously representing the aims of collectivity. So there's a kind of um, Ouroboros, or a kind of Mobius strip, you know, the strip that folds back in on itself here, where the collective is presenting a problem that only the individual can fix that is really only representative of the collective. And it's from here that we move now into chapter two, the schema of mass culture. So in mass culture, he starts with this chapter by saying, culture and empirical reality become more and more indistinct. That is, they come to resemble each other more and more. And this starts young. That is, this idea is kind of socialized into people at a very young age where, if we think of the schoolhouse dynamic, there is between, um, in the encounter between a teacher and a pupil, a kind of concealment of the misery of hierarchical subordination. That is, we naturalize this kind of subordination to an authority figure. And even children's stories prepare people for this. And this is kind of the basic of Uh, how we should understand, or how we can understand ideology, like through the work of Althusser, for instance, where uh, we are essentially programmed into accepting this world as we see it today, as being natural. That the way in which we go about through our daily lives, the kinds of interactions that we have with authority are natural. Now, of course, this is only an imagined kind of society. And this society is one where we find our kind of um, kind of self-fulfillment, our kind of self-realization in things like advertising and brands, where when we see the advertisement, we think, wow, they know how to speak to me. I am being you know, sold to. I am this individual. I have these needs. And of course, this has an effect on our capacity to imagine anything new to be creative where he says in, in his own words imagination is replaced by a mechanically restless control mechanism which determines whether the latest image to be distributed really represents an exact accurate and real- reliable reflection of the relevant item of reality so the system chooses what is taken to be real not just what is objectively real in the world if we can say such a thing exists but it very carefully selects what things we are allowed to know, what images we are allowed to see, how are we supposed to respond to those images, and, and so on. So of course now, art, that is a thing that we once, or still do, probably associate with culture, which is kind of a, an, odd, odd, um, an odd association, something that we'll explore more in one of the later chapters. Uh, this kind of association between art and culture because we have seen a kind of um, enmeshing of culture and the kind of real empirical world, what we see then is um, a blending of art then with that world too. And if that world is a world of production, that is economic relations that are founded on the principles of capitalism, then what we have is art enter into that sphere. Now, Adorno doesn't want to say or kind of regress into a, a, a kind of romantic starry-eyed gaze into the past where he could say, well, art was real, you know, previously, whereas now it's kind of abs- taken away of all of its uh, kind of cultural merit. He doesn't want to do that because, of course, that portends its own problems, that is, the problems of elitism and educational privilege and so on. But he does say that there was a time when art, actually represented, and this is where its potential kind of came from, it represented the alienation of the masses from art. That is, even in its exclusionary kind of nature in the past, it did reveal, it did make apparent that kind of oppressive framework, which could then be ostensibly overthrown or challenged. So this is kind of like In uh, Foucault's work, when he describes the transition from the spectacle of the scaffold, that is, putting people to death in a public square, to putting them to death in, you know, basements and stuff where people can't see it, what we see here is a transition from a very overt, clear form of control, or that is, the the spectacle of control, of authority, to a more, um, to, to a shadowy one which is much, better to me, much easier to maintain, precisely because it doesn't have the possibility, the same kind of possibility of revolt, which is kind of what we're seeing here. So while the work of art has lost its kind of potential, it's still, at least to I would assume many people, still is believed to stand in for culture. So it is just a kind of uh, simulation of culture. It's the kind of thing that we imagine culture to be, and it's the kind of real thing we can see in the world that we can point to and say, that is where culture is. And we have various zones we've constructed for that. You know, we have uh, uh, the kind of theater hall, we have the museum, we have the, the art gallery, and we can say, look, that is where culture is in these spots, it exists here. So this is a kind of manufactured culture which will, again, another thing we're going to talk about more in one of the later chapters. Um, But what it does then is it really enforces the idea that this system, that is this culture industry, actually produces the possibility for it to keep going. So when we think of industry, when we think of the economic system in which we find ourselves, we think of it as being one predicated upon labor. At least to the good Marxists out there, we see it as being one predicated upon labor, now, what we often oppose to that is this idea called culture. So, if we are not engaging in the kind of alienating effects of uh, of labor, we must be engaging in culture that is supposed to enlighten us, liberate us, to kind of emancipate us from the shackles of of this system. Now, Adorno is very suspicious. He's like, well... It seems as though this idea called culture might actually have been created by this system or at least is maintained in its simulated form in this system precisely to convince us that uh, it is a kind of place for the system to be challenged when in fact it is just an example of the way that the system can internalize its own negativity, the thing that might actually oppose it, and make it profitable for it to help it maintain itself. So it's funny because Adornos then says that, you know, what this culture, what this art essentially amounts to is essentially is just the baby food of mass culture. It's just the easily digestible non, you know, whereas art is supposed to challenge you, at least in a kind of romantic way, challenge you. The kind of thing that we take for art today is meant is just meant to, you know, be easily consumable. And as such, they are completely absorbed in the present. That is, they don't want to think about the history of the thing, right? They want to fetishize the thing. Now, that might be a a confusing. I should have talked about it in the other chapter. Fetishism, in terms of Marxist thought, means that a thing, a commodity, uh, a kind of produced object, is thought of purely in terms of itself. So it isn't considered in relation to the labor that went into making it. So, for example, if um, LeBron James endorses a sneaker, suddenly people are gonna be buying that sneaker. Now the value of that sneaker will surely go up because you know the producer knows that they can earn more money from that sneaker now that it has gotten this endorsement. Nothing has changed in terms of the production of that sneaker but suddenly its value has increased. So that is a kind of mysterious thing that happens under capitalism, for Marx, to go back a little bit, um, because suddenly, whereas rationally a thing would attain its value in direct proportion to the kind of means that made it, to the conditions that produced it, under this exchange system, this kind of advanced capitalist system, what we see is that things can attain a value of their own, they kind of become their own people. They become their own things separate from the conditions that made them. So things are fetishized. Things are essentially evacuated of their potential. They're kind of whitewashed to be made as easily consumable as possible. So one of the consequences is that people are uh, essentially incapable of looking suffering in the eye as they are incapable of exercising thought. So we don't want to see anything that will disturb us. We don't want to see anything that will challenge us. We want to see things that are going to be readily accessible to us. Now here he gets into one of his, I guess, more um, infamous criticisms, and that is of jazz music. So on, whereas it might appear that jazz music challenges all the conventions of kind of standard, standardized music, Adorno says that that is not quite the case. Now he doesn't really expand upon this in this book, but again, I'm going to draw draw upon that other text I mentioned. That is his essay on popular music. So in that text, he says that jazz music might appear to challenge the standard. That is, it uses you know, uh, it uses a lot of atonal uh, notes. It it jumps between scales. It doesn't make kind of conventional use of 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 timing it uses a lot of syncopation and because of that it might appear like it challenges standardization but what adorno says is that when you actually listen to it you only like to listen to it precisely because it challenges convention which doesn't actually give us anything of substance in itself it doesn't it doesn't have a kind of identity in itself and he goes even so far as to say that every time in jazz music, when you hear a note, that kind of you know, it's like a an accidental uh, note that might you know be a, a a diminished one or an augmented one that is outside of the scale. Your ear doesn't hear it as a thing in itself. It it your ear actually corrects that note, and it the note only attains value in relation to the note it should have been, and that is because our ears are so accustomed to you know basic kind of. Uh, rhythmic and 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 tonal um, structures of music that we have very little possibility to engage with a truly different form of music. So for him, the possibility of a kind of transgression of the standard, he's he's very skeptical of. So another thing is that jazz music and this this criticism really applies to uh, any kind of cultural thing that he, in the time that he's writing. Uh, any one of its points can be substituted with any other in in that music. Whereas he, you know, and this is the distinction he makes between serious music and popular music or light music, where he says that light music can, you know, any one of its parts can be uh, supplanted with any other, can be tr- trans, um, can be um, trans, my God, substituted with any other, replaced with any other part, and the thing will still make sense. Whereas You couldn't do that with one of Bach's partitas, for example, at least in his mind. That is, there's a story being told that follows a very set framework, a very set kind of um, trajectory that, if thrown off course, would mean the whole thing crumbles. Whereas with this, what we find ourselves in with this uh, current system is that things can be kind of thrown into any, like a kind of um, blender of possibilities and still come out and still be readily uh, welcomed by the public. And of course, then, if we consider something like film or television, so we already know what's going to happen when we watch a film, where if we watch a romantic comedy, um, probably we're talking about uh, a female protagonist who's going to fall in love with the person who's kind of like a, a a rugged dude or a kind of like playful dude as opposed to the more like serious one unless we're watching like bridget jones diary i guess adorno was wrong there are differences um, but the idea is that it follows a very set standard and pattern that we can for the most part determine what will happen just from, you know, the first few moments of the film. Now, like the consumers of these sorts of art, what we see is a, is a heavy emphasis on the present. So, contemporary art, let's, let's take the film again for example, it tries to transcend time by erasing history, by erasing, um, or by erasing time. Now, this it actually kind of has in common for Adorno two previous forms of art. Where previous forms of art sought to transcend time by meeting separate times in one, so the the artwork itself let's say let's say it was a play, the play was the nexus of very different um, different characters coming together with their own histories, their own times that explodes the very categories of time. So in that framework, time was was kind of opposed. Whereas with this one. We don't even know how to engage with time because we are just caught in this kind of oppressive presentness. That is, we want to forget the past, we want to forget history, and we just want to think about the today. Now, of course, then, in his words, art really only exists as long as it is impossible by virtue of the order which it transcends. So what that means is that art only becomes art by virtue of the fact that it opposes the dominant system, which you know, this contemporary art, like film, is incapable of doing because of its kind of um, giving itself over, its kind of acquiescence with or to the system at hand. But, you know, we're all good, we're all good uh, enlightened people. We probably watch Jeopardy, we read up on, on history and stuff. How can Adorno really say that, you know, we've lost a connection with history? Well, he wants to make a distinction here. And he says that You know, being able to regurgitate facts and information is not synonymous with engaging with history. It is, in fact, a kind of, you know, rationalized way, a kind of efficient way to engage with history. So we substitute, I'm going to say this in the right order, we substitute information for history. We we substitute facts for history. No, history for facts. I don't know. We appreciate facts now instead of an engagement with history, the kind of many uh, rhizomatic movements of history that would demand a very strong, heavy engagement with it. We, of course, don't do that. We instead just want the quick Reader's Digest version that will, you know, allow people to see us as as the kind of cultured uh, enlightened people we are because we are able to regurgitate these facts. So, like, a game show like Jeopardy is a kind of competitive way that people can demonstrate you know, their their knowledge as though having facts is synonymous with having knowledge. It's just a, so, a sophistry, really. But that brings us here into another component of this culture, and that is the the, the kind of um, existence of sports, the existence of competition that serves a very instrumental function for Adorno. That is, it teaches us about the kind of roles of Um, subordination and domination, that is the kind of roles of um, hegemony that we come to internalize and treat as being normal. But interestingly, he, he recognizes in sport the possibility of a kind of liberation, because there are things like cooperation, teamwork, that are the foundation of any kind of effective political strategy. Not to mention the kind of solidarity of, of, of having a team and willingness to help others. Now, of course, all of that is erased when we, you know, make sport a spectacle. Because in the eyes of the spectator, none of that matters. What matters is that the team they are vying for is the one that is going to defeat the other team. And here we enter again into the kind of competitive dog-eat-dog situation that is so indicative of late capitalism. Now, Adorno adds to this, the dynamic, adds to this dynamic, the fact that people often turn to sport in times of like political turmoil or like violent television, any kind of like escapism in the face of economic downfall, in the face of any kind of other turbulence. And he says that what that is doing is kind of keeping people within the same mindset, that is the same kind of competitive, dominating mindset. Now, of course, this isn't direct. This, there aren't like just some architects of this oppressive system sitting somewhere in some hotel room plotting all of this out. This happens just by virtue of the system itself because it is, it is a system founded on domination that wants to maintain domination. And the consequences are really drastic. Take the last line from this chapter, for example. Uh, They transform culture into a total lie, but this untruth confesses the truth about the socioeconomic base with which it has now become identical. The neon signs which hang over our cities and outshine the natural light of the night with their own are comets presaging the natural disaster of society, its frozen death. Yet they do not come from the sky. They are controlled from Earth." It depends upon human beings themselves whether they will extinguish these lights and awake from a nightmare which only threatens to become actual as long as men believe in it. So there's some hope there in emphasizing the fact that this isn't, you know, coming from without, as though it comes from God or from, from um, you know, malevolent architects of this that, that have, like, infinite power. This, in many ways, comes down to, you know, our relations with each other, our relations with ourselves, our relations with our labor, that if, can, if they can be undone, if they can be challenged, can open up, present new possibilities for us. And there, I'll close that one off now, that episode now, having done the first three chapters. And from next time, we'll look at the rest of the book where the chapters are much shorter. Great, all right. So if you got something from this, it'd be great if you let me know, leave a comment, like, share, tell the world, subscribe. um, And then, yeah, I'll catch you next time. Peace out.